Phytex, otherwise known as Chastberry, is a game changer because it does help regulate menstrual cycles. And even some of the studies, now a lot of the nutrients I'm going to talk about have been studied, but we don't have really large double-blind placebo-controlled trials on these herbs because, again, they can't be patented. Nobody's really you know, out there chomping at the bit to drop a million dollars on an herb when they know they can't hold that patent and keep other people from producing it. But again, these have been used for thousands of years in Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, and they have long-standing history of support and also safety and efficacy. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Hey there, are you over 40 and finding that a good night's sleep feels like a distant dream? Have no fear, I have cracked the code. I am offering a free ebook, A Woman's Guide to Kick-Ass Sleep, with insights tailored just for you. So, if you're ready to dive into the secrets of sound sleep after 40 and wake up refreshed, zip over to sleep.hormoneshelp.com and snag that ebook. Your dreamy sleep awaits. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So, today I'm going to jump into some very basics, but very important dietary, exercise, and herbal things that you can implement to help the menopause transition, or even if you're like me and you've been through that rite of passage, but you want to do the right things for your body. And I'm going to explain a little bit why I look at these as sort of the baseline important things to look at. So I'm going to start today and talk about dietary changes and managing menopausal symptoms, particularly from the functional medicine model, and looking at ways in which you can Eat to help manage symptoms of menopause. Now, first, obviously, I am very much a proponent in many cases for women to do hormone replacement, but sometimes there's also things that we can do with our diet, with our nutrition that can help support the body being balanced so we are less symptomatic. And I think even if you're doing hormone replacement, these are things that you want to do to make your body survive and feel better in this process. So let's get started with it. So there are several nutrients that I consider very important. So let's get the baselines out of the way, particularly for women. First and foremost is omega-3 fatty acids. Now you've probably heard fish oils are good for you. You've probably maybe hopefully take fish oils or you eat a fair amount of cold water, fresh, wild-caught fish. Either way, when we look at the nutrient needs that everybody has, your essential nutrients are the things that you must consume. So omega-3s are one of those nutrients that cannot be manufactured in the body. They have to actually be consumed. So if you're somebody who hates fish, eats it once a month, you are absolutely not getting enough. And to be 
completely honest, when we look at the research in omega-3s and their action in the body, specifically research that was conducted out of Harvard, looking at what the omega-3s actually produce. And the omega-3s in your body, particularly EPA and DHA, get made into a thing called a resolvin and a myricin. Think of those as traffic cops. And those traffic cops come along and they tell the body when to stop an inflammatory response. So the reality is we want an inflammatory response when we have some sort of injury and we, the inflammation actually would help us recover, but we want the traffic cop to come along and shut it down when it's done. So if you have a diet lacking in omega-3s, you do not have the traffic cop. You cannot make the traffic cop. And the researchers that looked at the research for resolvins and actually isolated that molecule found that you really need, on average, about 2,000, 2,300 milligrams of EPA and DHA over all your dietary intake each day, up to 4,000, depending on the person's you know, needs and disease states. The reason why I consider this very important for a woman going through the menopause transition is just the reality is, as a menopausal woman, we have more inflammation. The loss of estrogen and the loss of reparative testosterone and progesterone means our inflammatory activity actually increases. And so as a baseline, everybody needs omega-3s. Now, vitamin D and K2 with vitamin D and magnesium are also really important to bone health and osteoporosis health. So when we look at the risk for osteoporosis, if you're a woman, you're at risk, period, end of sentence, no other need for explanation. Now, if you're petite, if you are Caucasian or East Asian and were significantly light in weight or in some cases underweight, you have a greater risk because you did not have the chance to develop maximum bone density by 30 years old. But vitamin D, K2, magnesium all help the body understand, hey, you're going to take the calcium from my diet or the calcium that I consume, and you're going to take it to the bone so the bone can actually calcify and stay both strong and dense. And so vitamin D, absolutely, hands down, everybody needs. You need to get your vitamin D tested at least once a year. I recommend twice a year, even if it's the summertime and you live in a hot climate. I live in Texas, and it's boiling hot, and people are out in the sun a lot, and we still don't get enough vitamin D. You cannot manufacture it. You have to eat it if you're not outside naked midday or getting at least a lot of sun exposure without sun protection. So the reality is you only synthesize it from sun exposure. And again, most women in this age group, let's face it, a lot of times we're nervous about sun exposure and skin cancer and wrinkling. So vitamin D, I consider essential. Now, dietary patterns. I'm going to talk about some dietary intake of both herbs and foods today that may seem pretty interesting to you, but they actually help in a lot of different ways. So I've talked a lot about different dietary interventions, whether we're trying to get body fat off because of the weight gain that we experience around menopause and sort of resetting the body's metabolism. So today I'm going to step back and take a more global view of what foods can be really helpful when we're looking at trying to support our hormones for better symptoms. So the reality is much of our fruit and vegetables contain phytoestrogens. Same things with nuts and seeds. For instance, flax has an extraordinary amount of phytoestrogens. Your yam family have phytoestrogens, particularly wild yam, which is used in herbs. 
And then we've got many of your like soy derivatives. Now, I'm not a huge fan of soy, but there is some very good research looking at the phytoestrogens in soy, things like genistein, being actually protective. And so when you look at all the different diets that we have out there, you know, there's everything from the Mediterranean diet to the paleo diet to the vegan diet. What's one thing that most of us, other than the carnivore diet, would agree on? And I always look for this. I look for what's the commonality, instead of trying to divide, what's the commonality in all of these diets that generally support health? And so generally, all these diets, whether it's paleo, whether it's Mediterranean, or whatever it is, support the intake of fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds in their whole form, some cases whole grains, but they support an antioxidant nutrient-rich high fiber, low unnecessary calories, right? So very high nutrient density relative to calorie density food, which is going to be your fruits, your vegetables, your nuts and seeds. Why these are important is they actually have these modulating effects on our hormones. They also feed our microbiome. So a significant portion of my research was looking at the interaction of the microbiome and our estrogen metabolism. But the reality is, if you look at particularly fiber intake, not only feeds your microbiome and feeds the good bacteria, but it also helps your body excrete toxins by binding to the toxins in the bile and carrying them out through the stool. So not only do we have the nutrients that are valuable in a kind of Mediterranean-ish diet when you look at all the fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, but you also have the valuable fiber that feeds your microbiome, especially your positive microbes. And so when I look at a dietary intake, I want to make sure that I'm getting six to nine servings of fruit and vegetables a day. So what is a serving size? Because in America, we have a very skewed idea of what serving sizes are. And what I think is kind of interesting is most of the time when you go to a restaurant and you get, let's say, broccoli, it's like a two decorative broccoli spears, right? And then the carbohydrate, whether it's a baked potato or let's say it's rice or something like that, you get what would be equivalent to about four servings. So the reality is we probably don't even know what our serving sizes are. So a serving size, when we're looking at really anything, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, whole grains, your legumes, generally speaking, is going to be a half cup cooked. So if I cook it, it'll be a half cup. If I'm eating it raw, it's a cup. So if I'm looking at trying to get six to nine servings of really what I call your above ground friends, right? Our above ground friends are the vegetables that grow predominantly above ground. There's a few that I would count in this category that go below ground like carrots, but they're the very high fiber, high nutrient density, very low caloric value foods, but they pack a wallop when it comes to supporting hormone metabolism and your microbiome. And so that's all your things, your leafies, your peppers, if you don't take out nightshades, your zucchinis, your carrots, your onions, your garlic. All of those foods are very helpful because they provide all these nutrients that support detox pathways, that support your body's metabolism just across the board. Now, the reason why we want those is we're going to feed our microbiome that are going to help us excrete excess estrogens and phytoestrogens and other estrogens that our body comes in contact, like xenoestrogens. The other thing is these foods that have phytoestrogens also support hitting those receptors to keep the other things out of the receptor. 
And that's going to bring me to some herbs that I think are also really important. So on our body, most of our tissues, lots of our tissues have estrogen receptors and progesterone receptors, testosterone receptors. Different tissues have different densities of these receptors, but think of these as a keyhole. And if I have a keyhole, I have a key that needs to go in it. Well, part of the challenge with hormone changes as we go through perimenopause and menopause is the variability of the amount of estrogen or progesterone or testosterone we have available to hit those receptors, right? So we get at the ketchup bottle effect. Sometimes we have a lot. Sometimes we have a little. Sometimes one of them is very low, like progesterone, but estrogen is still fluctuating, so we get symptomatic. So when you look at the research, specifically looking, I'm going to use flax as an example, Flax lignans, which is a compound in flax, have this estrogenic, this very mild estrogenic effect. And they've looked at them in cancer treatment. They've looked at them in, obviously, you know, gut health. And what those foods do that have these really mild phytoestrogen effects is they can occupy the receptor in places where you don't want things like possibly xenoestrogens to hang out right? I want to either have my own hormone sitting in that receptor doing what it needs to do or something that is protective. I don't want BPA. I don't want phthalates. I don't want those estrogenic compounds occupying those receptors. So your fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, not only help you excrete, but a lot of these foods also help your body modulate these hormones. And I want to go into some herbs that I think are really important because a lot of times I get questions from people and they say, hey, Betty, maybe I'm in transition. I'm in transition. I'm not ready to do hormones yet, or I'm still learning and I want to understand this because my doctor is giving me you know, conflicting data because they probably haven't read a study in the last two decades or they're towing the party line and they're you know, not questioning their own opinion and own bias. And so you're probably confused and concerned. So there are some herbs that I really love that I think are also modulatory because they have these phytoestrogen activities. Most of these herbs are not things you would put on your food, but they are things you can take. So let's talk a little bit about them. I am in the middle of producing some new supplements for women's health, and this is the reason why I really started going into these because I really wanted to have support for women, especially that they can do nutritionally before they get to hormones. Right. So one of the important ingredients, and it's one that I actually created in my Meno Balance Mastery Supplement. I have one bottle here that's my example bottle because we're working on our bottling and all those other things. But I want to talk about the nutrients and why I picked them for this particular product and why they may be really valuable to you. So one of the long-used herbs in Ayurvedic medicine is a thing called Vitex and also known as chasteberry. And it works a little differently. It's not truly, so this one's interesting because it's not truly a phytoestrogen, but it influences the hormonal system by truly affecting the pituitary gland, which actually regulates your hormones because the pituitary gland, if you remember, is the coach that talks to your ovaries and tells your ovaries what to do. It's particularly good at regulating menstrual cycles and improving PMS symptoms. And it doesn't contain hormones, right? So It's actually going to help the pituitary modulate and coach the ovaries properly. And it is really effective at doing that. So what's really interesting is we've had lots and lots of women, myself included, that had a lot of PMS symptoms for a long time before they were actually fully in the menopausal transition. 
And whether it's PMS or PCOS, low progesterone, Vitex, otherwise known as Chastberry, is a game changer because it does help regulate menstrual cycles. And even some of the studies, now a lot of the nutrients I'm going to talk about have been studied, but we don't have really large double-blind placebo-controlled trials on these herbs because, again, they can't be patented. Nobody's really you know, out there chomping at the bit to drop a million dollars on an herb when they know they can't hold that patent and keep other people from producing it. But again, these have been used for thousands of years in Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, and they have long-standing history of support and also safety and efficacy. So I love Vitex and Chaseberry. If you're in that transition period and you're feeling very, let's say, PMSy, or you're having heavy periods, or like in my case, they were coming more closely together, I used Chaseberry to help kind of spread that out a little bit and control the hormones a little bit more without having to do hormones yet. Another one is a thing called Dong Kwai. Dong Kwai is also known as female ginseng. It's a traditional Chinese herb that's been used again for thousands of years that was really designed to treat menstrual irregularities and menopausal symptoms. It seems to balance the estrogen balance and helps manage things like hot flashes, mood swings, irregular periods, and definitely seems to help when you start getting those really abnormal periods as you go into that, you know, transition of menopause and helps calm things down and it regulates those hormonal balances. Now, Dong Kwai also has a little bit of a blood thinning effect. So if somebody is on like Eliquis or Warfarin, you want to be aware of taking Dong Kwai with those medications because they may have a compounding effect. And talk to your practitioner. They should be well-informed about how those things work. It doesn't necessarily take it off the table, but it's just an awareness thing to you know track, especially if you're on something like a Warfarin, to check your INR if you start taking these herbs. In most cases, in lower levels, and especially a combination product, you're not going to see that blood thinning effect. One of the other things that's used a lot is wild yam. And wild yam has been suggested to convert into various steroids. So wild yam is used in a lot of your over-the-counter hormone support products, particularly like your wild yam progesterone creams. And what it seems to do is it can be converted into various hormones. So wild yam's compounds, diosogenin, can be used to make estrogen, DHEA, and so they use it in the laboratory to make these different steroid hormones. So this is your most common over-the-counter or non-prescriptive ingredient to make topical DHEA or progesterone. And again, if you're using these creams, you are going to use these and they're going to have an effect like the hormone, but just at a lower level than what would be prescribed. And often it can be very helpful when somebody's in that very early transition. Maybe you don't need prescriptive progesterone, but you can use a wild yam either in a balancing product like the MenoBalance Mastery that I'm making or like a progesterone cream that is made from wild yam at a lower dose. And so it's widely used and also effective. Now, red clover is also a phytonutrient, a phytoestrogen, which mimics estrogen in the body. And this is particularly interesting in menopausal relief because, again, as we go into that menopausal season, we get not only low levels of estrogen, we also get spiking levels of estrogen. And even if you're still having periods, you might be getting enough estrogen to actually have a period, but not get the supportive amount you need to be biologically active. 
And I'll tell you, that was one of the things that shocked me the most when I was really digging around in the literature for my PhD. I was sure that I was in my 40s and I was at this really estrogen dominant state all the time because I would test it and I would see it spike very high. But knowing what I know now is I think a lot of my symptoms were that my overall estrogen production was inadequate, especially as I went into my latter part of my 40s, but I was having enough to have a period. But when I would test it, I was getting a lot of this wild fluctuation and using things that have a phytoestrogenic effect might have helped balance those things out. And I know that now, but at the time I was you know, to be honest, really kind of terrified of getting anything that might have an estrogenic effect because I spent most of my 30s and probably especially my early 40s with too much of it. So if we have menopausal symptoms, hot flashes, night sweats, mood swings, you've got, you know, periods that are abnormal, this might actually help because these may ease the symptoms of some estrogen deficiencies. And you know, looking at the impact of estrogen on cardiovascular disease and even bone density, we see that potentially red clover and some of these other nutrients might at least modulate that. Because you got to remember, estrogen has a positive effect on bone mineral density by stimulating osteoblasts and balancing bone metabolism. And so, and that's through an estrogen receptor A and B. And so these phytoestrogens sit in those receptors, mildly tapping on them. Ramanya is also another traditional Chinese herb often used in combination to affect your menopausal symptoms. And it nourishes the sort of female essence, if you looked at Chinese medicine, known as the yin. And it's it helps to alleviate symptoms of hot flashes, night sweats, and it helps with insomnia. It hasn't been as heavily studied as some of the other ingredients, but it is quite helpful. And when you use these herbs in combination, what you start to see is this modulating effect. So maybe the woman in that early menopause transition that is either A, not going to do hormones yet, or B, may not really be in that window yet, or maybe you're still figuring it out and you want to try something without doing prescriptive measures, these herbs can be very helpful in helping your body modulate your actual hormones. And so when we look at recapping sort of food things, we want to make sure that we're getting our omega-3s, vitamin D, vitamin K2. And magnesium also helps modulate some of your hormone activity. I truly believe that having a phyto nutrient-dense diet of six to nine servings of vegetables, you know, two to three half cup to one cup servings of fruit, obviously your low carbohydrate fruit like strawberries are closer to a cup on a dose, and then eating a lot of nutrient-dense but low-calorie food provides the right nutrients not only for my body to metabolize estrogens and all my hormones, but to feed my microbiome, which is possibly even more important and then if I look at herbs, I want to make sure that I'm using herbs that may have a positive effect on modulating my hormones. And I just went through several of them that are really helpful to help you modulate your hormones. So from a nutrition standpoint and a food standpoint, those are some things that you can actually enable right now. And I promise once my products are out and in the market, which should be in the next several weeks, I will definitely give you an opportunity to look at them and be able to get them. It's been a long time coming working on these products and getting them developed. 
But those things can really help you. So let me jump to the next one because I I talked about it in the very beginning, but I want to really go into some of the other things that we look at from a baseline managing menopause and that menopause transition, and particularly exercise. Have you been feeling off? You know what? Your hormones might be out of whack. Take my quiz to discover your personalized hormone imbalance and get a free report with your results. Learn what's really going on with your hormones and start feeling like yourself again. Just visit the website quiz.hormoneshelp.com to take the hormone quiz now. So I've interviewed one of my good friends, Deborah Atkinson, very early on in my podcast. And she is a exercise physiologist, has taught at the university level, and was one of the first women to really step out and create a women-centric, you know, menopausal 50. Her organization's called Flippin' 50 that is really science-based, evidence-based exercise recommendations for women's health when you're in this transition period. So I want to talk about menopause and the impact of exercise on menopause, the different types of exercise, and some things that you may not know about the changes in menopause that leave you at a greater risk for injury during this time period. So one of the things we know is as we go through the aging process, so I alluded to it when I said something about bone density. So bone density, we generally max out at about 30 years old, and then we start to lose bone mineral density. We also start to lose muscle mass in our 40s, and then it accelerates as we lose our hormones. So women lose a significant amount of muscle mass during this time period. And that can be problematic because we want to hold on to muscle because muscle not only makes you look fit and trim and you know makes your arms look good, but the other thing is it protects your bone. One of the greatest risks for all-cause mortality and early mortality, and particularly mortality after a fracture, is the lack of muscle mass. Not just bone mass, but muscle mass. So if we were to look at one of the most important longevity strategies a woman can do, muscle mass is important. Well, one of the things that I see a lot is women tend to get a lot more connective tissue injury as we enter into this time period. So not only are we losing muscle, but we get a lot of injury. So when we look at exercise, strength training should be your star. Strength training, especially where you have some weights that are going to be heavy with low repetitions, actually helps stimulate muscle growth the most. Body weight exercise, rubber band exercise, light weights on exercise can be helpful, but getting some heavy weight lifting in there is actually very stimulatory to the bone and stimulatory to the muscles. They give a bigger, let's say, coaching recommendation to the muscles to build. And the reality is we need more of those muscles. And five pounds of muscle is the same as five pounds of fat also for anybody that's afraid they're going to bulk up. But five pounds of muscle takes up a lot less space. So think of it as sort of your metabolic girdle. And so for every muscle we can put on, we burn an extra 100 to 150 calories also. So the body just becomes more metabolically efficient. So weight training should be your, let's say, focal point if you were to look at an entire week of exercise. However, you can overdo weight training. I used to spend a lot of time in the bodybuilding community about seven, eight years. 
And one of the things that I learned a lot was not so much just how to exercise and put on muscle, but it was how to make recovery and everything I did outside of the gym more effective. So when you wet lift, you have to give time for repair and rebuild. So you can't lift heavy six days a week. You can't weight train six days a week on the same body parts and get any growth. Because when you lift weights, part of the stress that's on the body to build more muscle is usually in the last couple repetitions. So if you take it one or two more reps harder or one or two more pounds heavier, if you think about it that way, more intensity, it's really in that last effort where you get the most growth. But in order to grow, you have to give the muscle a chance to recover. What's happening in the muscle is you're creating petechial tears. You're creating these little tiny tears in the muscle. And then your body goes back in and fixes it. And it needs amino acids and proteins to do that. It actually needs glucose and insulin to do that. And it needs time. So when we look at weight training, it should be a focal point of your exercise, but it should have some distance between. And if you start lifting heavier, I still think doing splits, meaning it might be lower body one part one day, upper body the next, or some sort of split of body parts. Some people do push and pull, you know, so front of body, back of body. It just depends what your goal is. The reason why you split is so you can give some recovery time to the body part you worked out yesterday or the day before so it can recover and rebuild. So the idea of doing circuit training every single day, I think, may make you feel good, may help you hold muscle mass, but it may not help you really rebuild and recover muscle in the same way. And again, I look at it and go, we are losing, depending on what study you look at, you know, significant muscle mass every year as a woman over 40 and especially accelerated over 50. So I want to focus on actually putting on muscle because naturally our body is going to be losing it. So I think weight training is a focal point of exercise. Now, cardiovascular training. I've had a couple episodes where we've gone into this in detail. So most women will say, hey, Betty, I walk. That's my exercise. Well, in most cases, that's movement. Because your body has adapted to that, it's good for overall health, it's good for mental health, might be slightly good for your cardiovascular body, but doing both high-intensity interval, which is not a long duration, it's actually most of the research shows that if you're doing a high-intensity interval, we start to lose diminishing return very quickly in the process. So if I'm warming up and let's say I'm doing sprints on my bicycle or I'm doing cardio type work where I might be rowing, let's say, and I'm warming up and then I'm doing a high burst of energy, we get the most benefit within that first 10, 11 minutes. And at about 15 minutes, we start to see the value diminish. So I also use high intensity interval, but I use it very strategically in on days where I don't have a lot of time. I don't need to spend 45 minutes cranking out high-intensity intervals to get benefit from it. And in a lot of cases, it may actually be less beneficial because it raises your stress chemistry, doesn't give you adequate time to recover. And there's a ton of research on that, and I can easily do a whole episode just on that. So high-intensity intervals, I might put in there one or two times. One of the most important things that I think get overlooked is the value of really getting good flexibility and maintaining flexibility. One of the things that happens as we go through menopause is we see, number one, a lot more tendon and ligament injuries because the hormones, particularly estrogen, are protective to 
our ligaments and tendons. And when we lose estrogen and progesterone, we get decreased elasticity in our connective tissue. So you go, okay, yeah, I never really injured myself and I keep hurting something, right? I keep injuring something. So we lose some of that elasticity. So if we're not doing good flexibility exercises, and there's yoga and there's Pilates, there's also things like kin stretch and other things that are really designed to help create major ligament and tendon flexibility, but also keep joint flexibility. Because being strong but not being flexible is not valuable. And you're more likely probably to injure yourself. And I would say coming from the bodybuilding world, for sure, back in the 90s and the early 2000s when I sort of lived that life, that was not a focus. You didn't see, you did not see weight training, you know, bodybuilders in the gym doing any flexibility exercises at all. And they were good at lifting weights, but they were completely inflexible and there was a lot of injuries from it. So that feeling of rigidity and decreased flexibility is also hormonal. It also leaves us at a greater risk for susceptible injuries that could be sprains, strains, all the way into like IT band, hips, knees, ankles, wrists, shoulders. So we lose that flexibility. So you've got to have some of that integrated into your efforts. And obviously, if I'm doing hormone replacement, that helps protect it. If I've got more hormones on board back to a natural level, I'm going to have more protection for those supportive connective tissue. Joint pain and arthritis is also common. And again, the changes in connective tissue affect the joints. So think of it as when we lose our hormones, all of our connective tissue dries out. The little discs between your spine bones start to dry out and we lose some of that elasticity cushion. So you see an increased risk of osteoarthritis, which is the loss of protective cartilage and more joint pain more and more stiffness. And then tendinopathies. So tendinopathy is tendon injury that involves usually larger scale tissue damage. And it can become more common during the menopause transition and after because we get less production of quality collagen, which is a protein in connective tissue and tendons. So collagen is what our body uses to make not only our tendons and ligaments, but it also is part of our bone structure. And we become less capable of making quality collagen fibers as we get older, which is why collagen supplementation can be helpful. But just adding collagen as a nutrient and I highly recommend doing that. It's not doesn't replace your protein. It's additive to your protein. Yes, it does have amino acids in it, but it's not a complete protein. But it can help give your body the raw material, hopefully that your body can turn around. Vitamin C helps with collagen synthesis. There's lots of things that we can do, but we have to maintain lubrication and flexibility. And so good flexibility training is also really important to help not only avoid injury, but it is a baseline requirement for healthy menopause transition. So that, again, is something you can look at. And that could be anything from yoga to Pilates to kin stretch. Those things can all help your body become more flexible and stay flexible. So if I were to look at a week, I would center the week with days that include weight training, one or two days that has some high-intensity interval, and then put in some flexibility training. And then I still believe in doing your exercise, doing a zone two cardio at least once a week. 
Now, some people add a lot more. Reality is I couldn't fit that in my schedule if my life depended on it. I would have to give up something that I consider just as important, if not more, which is sleep. And I'm not willing to give up my sleep. But I do try and get in each week one long zone two cardio. And zone two cardio, I have a whole episode where I talk about the different exercise things. But zone two cardio is really that fat burning zone where you're on there for time that does lower your overall heart rate improve heart rate variability, improve cardiovascular fitness. Now, it's not helpful if you're doing it every damn day and that's the only thing you do, but I also include one of those and I might have some stretching and other things I do on that day. So when I look at my exercise baseline activities for menopause transition and beyond, that's a part of it. I have my weight training, I have my flexibility training, I have my HIIT, And then I have my cardio that I do in zone two to help overall cardiovascular fitness and also fat burning (laughs) because the reality is if you're in zone two, you're fat burning. If you're above zone two, you're not. And those all help. So if we move on to the next idea, right, the next idea is we have to figure out what efforts we want to put in to decide whether we want to do hormone replacement as far as menopause management, particularly around the diet and exercise. So what I would say if I were looking at this and as a woman maybe in this transition is hormone replacement is really, I think, important in the long run. I think it is valuable. I don't think it's for every woman either. But I think in general, the research is really showing and all the research up until the Women's Health Initiative shows that it's protective because we want to lengthen our health span, not just our lifespan. But hormones themselves are not a magic bullet. So if I don't have the diet kind of dialed in, where it's a diet that helps my body function at its best, and I'm getting the right baseline nutrients, and I'm feeding my microbiome so they can help me detoxify and carry out my toxins and support my body nutrient levels and support my body's immune system, the hormones themselves are not a magic bullet. And so even though we talk about them a lot, we have to have those baseline measures that we are doing to help our body be healthier. And I do believe it starts with that healthy diet and it starts with the right reflective exercise and the things that are really designed to help us maintain our health. And if we don't have those baselines, then we are running the risk of not doing the right things, and then expecting a Hail Mary of hormone replacement to take care of it, which is a very conventional way of looking at your health. You know, conventional health says, well, watch and wait until your symptoms become bad enough. We can label you with a disease. Then we're going to apply a treatment, usually a drug, one or more, to that disease. That's not a good way to go about it because at that point, the train is out of the station. We have to look at it the other way. And the baseline activities of managing your diet, getting those nutrients in that help, and that also may help your symptoms on top of whatever else you may do will help. And then obviously the exercise part is a big thing. And so if I look at hormone replacement, it becomes additive on top of this, additive on top of this. And so the very last thing I want to talk about today, and I mentioned it briefly, is the protection of sleep. One of the things I find with my particularly hard-charging ladies is they want to get their exercise in, and they want to get their exercise in, but they will do it at the expense of their sleep. And I think there's a dance here. We need to move. Our body's meant to move. We are an animal. But I think if you're giving up your sleep so you can get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to make it to the gym so you could work a 14-hour day every day, 
and you're going to bed at 10 o'clock at night, you may be shifting the balance from one thing to another and not getting any benefit from either one. So the other thing I look at is protecting that sleep. And some of the easy ways you can really do that as your baseline needs to help you go through menopause is number one, circadian rhythm training. It doesn't cost you a dime. What that means is you need to be exposed to sunlight early in the morning, no glasses, no blue light blocking. And what that does is that sets your circadian clock. It tells the body, hey, about 12, 14 hours from now, I'm going to start making melatonin and this is my clock. So if you get up and you go to work in the dark and you come home in the dark and you never stand outside for a few minutes getting sunlight on your eyes, your clock in your brain and body, every cell has a clock. Even your microbes have clocks. They don't know what time it is. Those cells don't know what time it is. And that starts to mess with your body's actual rhythm. So getting up in the morning and getting early morning sunlight, just looking at blocking blue light, I had a whole episode with the CEO of Viva Rays talking about blue light, green light, and how that spectrum from blue and green to your oranges and ambers and how that helps our brain now transition into nighttime. So getting off of your phones and your computers and your tablets and putting on amber glasses at night. All of those things can help your brain set that sleep dial in motion to help you sleep. And then it's looking at the quality of the sleeping area in your room, even just doing simple things like making sure your room is cooler. When your room is cooler or your body's cooler, your core body temperature drops and that helps you drop into sleep. And maintaining a cool body, maintaining a cool body is also really important. There are things like your chilly sleep pad. And we have one that we recommend also that is quite helpful. And you can get it in my sleep book, A Woman's Guide to Kick-Ass Sleep. So you want to maintain body temperature because that keeps your cortisol from climbing and pulling you out of sleep. And there's a ton of research on that. It is absolutely clear. What I really love about these sleep pads is I go to bed cold. My feet are cold. My hands are cold. Sometimes my thighs are cold. I don't know if you've ever had that happen where all of a sudden you're like, my thighs are cold. I can't go to sleep. So I have it warm up in the wintertime, and then it cools off, and that helps me go to sleep. So when I first get in it, it's nice and toasty, and then it cools off. So even doing body temperature control, and then making sure your room is dark, really dark, and that you don't have flashing lights and other things that might be disrupting your sleep. Turning off your Wi-Fi. Turning off your Wi-Fi reduces EMFs and actually can help because your body's electric and that EMFs can mess with your body's regulating of sleep and other things on top of many other things. So all of those things can be helpful. And then it might be a good time to do some of your stretching before you go to bed because that's a great way to sort of help your body sort of level out, calm down, relax, and go to bed. And then there's a host of sleep supplements and other things that you could take if sleep is a problem. Modulating your hormones with some of those hormonal modulating herbs will also help with sleep because a lot of times our sleep disruption, especially in our 40s and above, is actually from the changes in progesterone particularly, but then also estrogen that actually wreaks havoc on our sleep. So even doing some of the herbs I talked about will help with your sleep. And then it's managing the stress that might be playing out in your sleep and finding appropriate ways to get that under control so your brain isn't sort of having its own dialogue all night. It's one of the things I hear so much from my women is they'll be like, Betty, I wake up and it's like my brain has already been talking to me. I'm having an entire conversation about my to-do list for tomorrow and I just realized it. And so 
you know, things like L-theanine can help with that sort of ruminating thoughts. There's lots of things that we can do, but these are the baseline things that you need before you consider hormone replacement because, again, it is an extraordinary thing to help, but it can't make up for a bad lifestyle. Believe me, I tried. I've tried. Can I do supplements instead of sleep? Can I do supplements instead of managing my stress? That doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You have to take care of your body. So to recap what we learned today, the nutrients you eat in your foods, particularly especially your fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds, even legumes and whole grains, I'm not necessarily of the mindset that everybody needs to remove those foods. There are times that might be a therapeutic diet. I do eat some gluten-free grains. I do eat legumes. They are slow-burning carbs. They feed our good microbiome. I think the more we get research, the more we're going to find particularly diets that really cut off the fiber adversely uh, affect our microbiome. We do have research already that shows that, but I think long-term we're going to see even more. So I do believe these foods are important because they're nutritive to our entire body, but also our hormone system. And if I'm eating six to nine servings of fruits and vegetables a day and some nuts and seeds and maybe some slow-burning carbs, my starchy vegetables, my legumes, I'm going to feed my microbiome, which in turn is going to make my hormone symptoms better because my literally the junk coming out of your liver gets bound to the fiber in your diet and goes out with the stool. And it also keeps the microbiome fed. So those are like the baseline nutrient things we need, vitamin D, omega-3s, along with K2 and magnesium baseline. Everybody needs them. I've never tested people that weren't on them that really probably didn't need them unless they were very mindful of their diet. When we look at your phytonutrients that can help with hormones, I am coming out with a product called Menobalance Mastery, and it contains things like Vitex, otherwise known as Chaseberry, Dong Kwai, Wild Yam, Ramanya. Those herbs have either a phytoestrogen or a pituitary modulating effect that can help the hormones balance out and help make your symptoms better because they actually modulate the hormones. And they have protective effects in things like estrogen-sensitive cancers. Genistein and flax in particular, the flax lignans, have good research showing actual value here. So these things modulate and may help improve hormone symptoms. And then last but not least, you need to think about your tendons and ligaments and how you exercise and make sure you put in flexibility because when we start to lose those hormones, particularly estrogen and progesterone, we start to get tight and stiff. I used to be super flexible, like overly flexible, but I can tell you, you know, I really doubled down recently on my flexibility training because I was noticing I was getting tighter and I'm still on hormones. This happens as we age anyway, but I really doubled down now on my stretching and my other activities to keep that flexibility because being strong and inflexible isn't good. And keeping that muscle mass is really important not only to your bone health, but it is important to your overall longevity. Literally, that's one of the biggest measures of longevity and health span. So muscle mass, we need to have exercise that does that. And then last but not least is we want to support our sleep. We want to make sure that we are not foregoing one of the most important things to our body. If sleep wasn't important, we wouldn't spend a third of our life doing it. And we wouldn't go into paralysis during sleep. That's not safe as an animal. It is so very vital to us. And I can honestly say once I got my airway fixed and once I was able to breathe properly at night and my sleep corrected, it was like turning the Titanic before the iceberg. It was nuts how much that made a difference. And so you've got to protect your sleep. And I would not recommend foregoing sleep for exercise thinking that's going to improve your metabolic health. You may actually backfire there. 
Okay, I covered a lot today. I covered a lot in the basics, and I hope you got a lot out of it. If this was a fabulous show on Menopause Mastery, I'd love for you to do a couple things. Please give me a review. This helps us grow. It helps me get really great guests, and it helps millions of women across the world that need to hear this message. Number two, subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And number three, share it with a friend because together we rise. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at bettymurray.com.